0: Wondery Plus subscribers can listen to 10% Happier early and ad-free right now. Join Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or on Apple Podcasts. From ABC, this is the 10% Happier Podcast. I'm Dan Harris. Hey, guys. I'm really excited about our guest this week. Uh, He's going to take you on quite a ride. He is a a character and a fascinating human being. Johan Hari, coming up. Uh, first three quick items of business. The first item we have, as I mentioned last week, been nominated for a Webby Award. It's apparently a big deal. They call it the Oscars of the internet, and we would love if, if you would go vote for us. You can do so in thirty seconds by going to 10 dot com. You click on the banner at the top of the page. There's a link. There's also a link in the show notes, and uh, it you just got to register and vote. Anyway, do me a solid. Vote for us. That would be awesome. Uh number two on my list of items of business is that yesterday, the fifth anniversary edition of 10% Happier, the book, came out. It's in bookstores all over, at least good bookstores all over. We'll be carrying it. Um, it's got a new preface and a whole bunch of new guided meditations in the back of the book from people like Joseph Goldstein and Sharon Salzberg. And if you buy the book, you will, be, you will be able to get access to the audio versions of those meditations for free in the 10% Happier app. If you're already a subscriber, you'll get those uh, uh, meditations uh, because you're a subscriber. Uh, and if you want to order it online, you go to hc.com slash happier. It is a, a great gift. It's a great uh, Frisbee and a great doorstop. And uh, third item of business is uh, we'll be doing the two voicemails that we do every week at the end of the show, as always, when that's a a recent um, alteration we've made. And I want to remind you, if you want to ask a question, here's the number, 646-883-8326. 646-883-8326. You can leave a voicemail there. That number is also up in our show notes. Um, It's also, uh, you can can post us questions if you go to 10percenthappier.com. Slash podcast as well. Um, all right, that's the business. All right, so uh, let's get to Johan Hari here. He uh, has a deeply personal and I think deeply useful story. On one level, he's a, he's a guy who, who had it all. He's an award winning newspaper writer for such publications as the New York Times and the LA Times. He's also a best selling author. He's got a TED Talk that's been viewed 21 million times, and he's a regular panelist on Real Time with Bill Maher on HBO. But he's been struggling for decades with deep, deep depression, Uh, and he decided a little while ago to use his skills as a journalist and also as a social scientist to try to figure out why we're seeing epidemic levels of depression and anxiety, addiction and suicide, and what he found uh, in his new book, which is called Lost Connections, what he found may change your view of depression, his argument is that we need to see it not just as a chemical imbalance, as it's often seen. And, and sometimes he, he he will concede, of course, that sometimes it is the, the, the result of that. But he, he argues that the bigger cause is how we're living today. And you know, while he's not anti-antidepressants, and he spent a lot of time on antidepressants personally, he does think we need to expand our concept of what an antidepressant is. So you're going to hear him talk about the power of social connection which has been lost in our tech-drenched world in in, in many ways. He's also going to talk about the power of nature. And he has a series of incredibly rich stories from his reporting around the planet on how people are attacking this problem of depression. So, for example, what is an antidepressant in Cambodia? Uh, The answer may surprise you. uh, He also talks about Canada's experiment with giving people $12,000 a year. And he gets really emotional when he talks about what happened in Germany in one community when people rallied around one of their neighbors who most of them did not know who was suicidal, a woman who was suicidal and really galvanized some change in one place in Germany. Uh, and, of course, he talks about his own meditation practice, and that's, that's where we begin. So here we go, Johan Hari. Great to
1: meet you. Hooray. I'm so happy to be here, Dan.
0: Uh, I always start with the same question and I'm curious in your case, what the answer will be. How did you get interested in meditation?
1: I came to it in a slightly weird way. I was very resistant to it for a long time. I came to it because of this book that I was working on. So I wrote my book about depression, lost connections because there were these two mysteries that were really hanging over me. And I was really afraid to look into them actually for a long time. And it's related to my resistance to looking into meditation Um, The first mystery was I am 40 years old and every year that I've been alive, depression and anxiety have increased here in the United States and across the Western world. And I wanted to understand why, like, why is this happening to us? Why are so many of us with each year that passes, finding it harder and harder to get through the day? Mm. The second mystery was more personal. When I was a teenager, I remember going to my doctor and explaining, I think the way I put it was that I had a feeling like pain was leaking out of me. I couldn't control it. I couldn't regulate it. I didn't understand what was going on. Um, And my doctor told me a story which I now realise wasn't totally untrue, but was really oversimplified. Um, My doctor said, well, we know why people get like this. There's just a problem in their brains. Um, The way he put it was some people have a a natural chemical imbalance in their brains or they're just lacking a chemical called serotonin. All we need to do is give you these drugs, you're going to be fine. So I started taking an antidepressant called Paxil. And it did give me significant relief for a few months. Um, and then this feeling of pain started to come back. So I went back to the doctor. He said, I didn't give you a high enough dose. Again, I felt better. Again, the feeling of pain came back. And I was in this cycle of jacking up the dose until for 13 years I was taking the maximum possible dose at the end of which I was really depressed still. And I could see around me more and more people were becoming depressed. Um, so I ended up going on this big journey. I wanted to used my training in the social sciences at Cambridge University to kind of meet the leading experts in the world about what causes depression and anxiety and crucially what solves them. And just people with really different perspectives from an Amish village in Indiana because the Amish have very low levels of depression to a city in Brazil that banned advertising to see if that would make us feel better to a lab in Baltimore where they were giving people psychedelics to see if that would help. And I learned lots of things, but the heart of what I learned is There's scientific evidence for nine causes of depression and anxiety. Two of them are indeed in our biology. Um, Your genes can make you somewhat more sensitive to these problems. And there are real brain changes that happen when you become depressed that can make it harder to get out. But most of the factors that cause depression and anxiety are not in our biology. They're factors in the way we live. Mm -hmm. And once you understand them, that opens up a very different way uh, a different set of solutions that should be offered as part of a menu on which chemical antidepressants should totally remain on the menu, but there should be one of a very broad range of options for people.
0: Wait, I'm going to stop you for just one mm. second because I know we're ultimately going to get to how this led you to meditation, but I'm just interested in, in sure. several of the things you've already said. <laughs> um, so I apologize. Uh, it's on me for derailing you. But when you talk about the nine factors, is that your analysis or is that scientifically accepted? That Because I had always been of the view, having being in a family where depression and anxiety uh, have been widespread that it made me prone to it and of course there are lifestyle factors too but that the, gen- the genetic part of it was huge
1: so there's a very broad scientific agreement that there are three kinds of cause of depression and anxiety there are biological causes like the ones you allude to there are psychological causes and there are social causes and they, pl- they all play out to some degree in all forms of mental illness right to different degrees with different mental illnesses and with different individuals. So um, you're right that there is a real genetic component, but it's too simplistic to think your genes write your destiny. One of the best pieces of research, and nothing I've said is, none of what I've just said is controversial. There are other aspects of what uh, the scientific evidence that I present from scientists that are disagreed with about about by other scientists, but no no serious scientist disputes. This is called the biopsychosocial model, right? Biological, psychological, social causes. That's the position, for example, of the World Health Organization, the leading medical body in the world, who've also been telling us that while the biology is very real, it has dominated too much of the debate. As the leading expert at the World Health Organization put it, for World Health Day two years ago, we need to talk less about chemical imbalances, more about power imbalances, mm. about the imbalances in the way we live. Um, but in, in terms of the genes which you raised, because it's very important, like you, I had depression in my family, I also had depression. Um, Quite a lot of uh, addiction in my family as well, and I was actually told this quite disempowering biological story that you kind of inherit these problems. That's not true. So a good analogy. Well, it's partly true. Um, it's not true that you inherit them. You may inherit something of a greater sensitivity to them. That's a big difference, right? Mm. So uh, think about an analogy that everyone understands. Some people find it hard to put on weight and some people find it easy to put on weight. I'm one of those people who finds it really easy to put on weight, right? Some people, you know, I just have to eat a Snickers bar and my chins swell and some people get to eat a whole, some people I despise get to eat a whole fun size pack and, you know, they're fine. So that, I've got a greater sensitivity to it, but that's not my destiny, right? I've had plenty of times in my life where I wasn't fat because I changed the way I live, right? Uh, in a similar way, so I'll give you an example. This guy called Professor Absalom Caspi who did the most detailed study, one of the most detailed studies we have of the genetics of depression, he found, um, it was a massive population study in New Zealand, he found that there was a specific gene, it's called the H5TT gene, that does make you more vulnerable to depression. But, and this is really interesting, if you had that gene, you were more likely to become depressed, but only if you became acutely lonely or you experienced serious childhood trauma. If you didn't experience those problems, you were no more likely to become depressed than someone who didn't have the H5TT gene. So that's a good illustration. Right now, there's a lot of other things going on in the genetics. He doesn't claim that's the only thing. No one does. But that's a really good illustration. You can see it increases your sensitivity, but it doesn't write your destiny. Mm-hmm. You don't inherit it. You can, just like you don't inherit being fat, but you can inherit being slightly more prone to putting on weight.
0: You inherit the propensity.
1: Yeah, you can inherit some greater sensitivity yeah. is how I would put yes. it.
0: Yeah. Um. okay, you were I, I derailed you. You were talking about how researching this book led you to meditation. And oh yeah, so, so, so.
1: so learning about all these different causes. Because, how would I put it, for such a long time, I have been told the kind of approved story that I was told by my doctor and that many of us are told in this culture is this is just a problem in your brain. Solve it in your brain just with drugs. And that, I want to stress again that to give me some relief didn't solve the problem for me. Um, And so I, I was kind of looking for these wider solutions. And the last third of my book, Lost Connections, is really these kind of alternative solutions that flow from, once you understand this much wider range of causes, you can find a wider range of solutions. And there are scientists all over the world who are pioneering this. I actually came to the meditation through a quite, um well, actually, obviously, I knew about meditation for a long time and had tried it at various points in my life, and I found it for a really long time upsetting. you know, I was in this kind of maelstrom, maelstrom of um, depressed feelings and then coping mechanisms to to deal with depressed feelings that were very often um what I would regard as manic forms of activity, right often very productive and meaningful forms of activity to me. So I don't want to dismiss them, but I think they came from, I had grown up in a, an environment that was um, chaotic and, and sometimes violent. Uh, there was addiction in my family. Um, I had, you know, uh, family who were wonderful people in many ways, but there was a lot of problems there as well. And uh, and I had actually experienced some quite extreme acts of abuse from an adult in my life. My mother had been very ill and my dad was in a different country um and my way of coping with that the way i had built was from a very young age read write work right your way of not being present with this chaos and these frightening situations which i had no control over was okay you're going to create a world through writing through reading i mean from when i was like five i was writing hours a day right um And that, in some senses, worked well. I don't think I would have got through that situation had I not had that coping mechanism. But that meant that I associated moments of calm, moments of kind of repose, moments of non-manic production, (laughs) of of stepping away from manic production, as moments in which I was intensely vulnerable and frightened. I remember interviewing an amazing man who'd be a great person for you to have on your your show, a guy called Bill Richardson, Professor Bill Richardson, who's a key figure in psychedelic research. He's the only figure who was involved in the psychedelic research in the 60s when it was shut down, the academic research, when it was shut down by Nixon, and then is still around and takes part in the reawakening of the psychedelic research that's happening all over the world now. And I remember him saying to me, one aspect of depression anxiety, addiction, a lot of the problems that are rising at the moment, is he, he described them as partially addiction to the self, addiction to the ego, which I thought was a really interesting way. I'd never thought of it that way. And I'm talking to Bill at his home in Baltimore about this, and him saying, you know, partly what that is, is a feeling that you are trapped in your own ego, your thoughts are rattling around, and you've got no way of getting out of that ego, out of that moment out of that sense that you're stuck in yourself. And he said what a lot of these techniques like meditation and psychedelics are, is they can give you a sense of release from that feeling of being trapped in the ego. And I remember listening to him and uh, simultaneously thinking, you're right, that sounds really good. I could never do that. And I remember sometime afterwards being with my friend Isabel Benke, who also would be an amazing guest because She's one of the most amazing people I know. She's a Chilean uh, primatologist um extraordinary person did i mean people should look up Isabel? Uh, her ted talk is amazing as well um, it was a good place to start and isabel was teaching me about the role that uh, exposure to the natural world can play in reducing depression so we know there's loads of evidence if you are cut off from the natural world you're much more likely to become depressed animals in zoos go crazy right it's called zoocosis. um Parrots will rip out their feathers. Horses will grind their tusks, which are a great source of pride in the wild, down to bloody stumps. Um, horses will start obsessively swaying. It, depriving an animal of its natural habitat will drive it mad. zookosis um, There's all sorts of evidence that a similar thing is happening with us. So, for example, I mean, there's loads of evidence about this that I go through in the book, but for example, this is an accidental um, discovery, but the state prison in Michigan had, it's random where you're assigned, but it has one part that looks out over beautiful greenery, green fields, lush trees, and one part that looks out over a concrete parking lot. Mm. And there was a study of this, and it found that even though it was random where you were assigned, the people who looked out over lush greenery were 20% less likely to have mental illness of any kind. They actually had lower physical illnesses as well, right? which totally fits with what's it. called biophilia the idea that species evolved to live in certain habitats. We love those habitats. You deprive of those those habitats and it will really screw you up. So I remember Isabel saying to me, I will explain this to you provided you walk up a mountain with me. (laughs) Right? I had to illustrate this. We were in Banff in Canada at the time. So she takes me up this mountain and I really have avoided natural landscapes in my life. I didn't know why. And it's very related to actually why I was avoiding um, meditation. So we go to the top of this mountain in Banff and isabel's talking to me about biophilia and again i'm intellectually agreeing with her (laughs) and i'm thinking yeah but i don't want any of this right i don't i don't i don't this is not for me and i was standing at the top and isabel's explained to me the various reasons why exposure to the natural world is reduces depression and anxiety and one is biophilia but another one is and again there's very good evidence for this generally what people get in beautiful scenes of the natural world is a feeling of awe and a feeling of awe is a moment when you feel really small and the world feels big and you are released from your ego. You realize that you're part of this huge tapestry. It's not all about you. You actually, you're just a really small dot in this beautiful, big cosmos. Right. And and when you are um, psychologically healthy, that experience, you experience that as a great relief. Right. Oh, but if you bring to that what I was bringing to it, um, which was the kind of legacy of of childhood trauma, at that point, I could not feel that because actually, if your formative experiences some of your formative experiences were well actually, if you 're small and the world is big, then you 're really vulnerable, then the world can come in and just do terrible things to you that so to to get to the point where you can experience those liberatory things from nature. And then, of course, this led me to meditation. Sorry, it's a long answer to your question. I apologize. I love it. I love
0: it. Keep um, going. To, this, is, this is a rabbit hole by design, so feel free. <laughs> to,
1: to, to get to the point where to have these insights, you have to feel secure. You have to have a baseline of security. You have to, but we know this about psychedelics and the debate about bad trips, right? So we know psychedelics, and I interviewed the leading scientists who've been doing amazing work reviving this in uh UCLA in Los Angeles, at, uh in, in UCL in London, in Sao Paulo, in um Aarhus in Denmark and loads of other places. Um so we know that um psychedelics can have an extraordinarily positive impact on people in terms of reducing depression, addiction, uh smoking, all sorts smoking is a form of addiction of course, and and all sorts of other things. But some people have really bad experiences, a minority, but some people have really bad experiences what's the difference when people don't feel safe, where they don 't feel secure um, that that 's when they have bad experiences because of course this, this the experience of of lowering your ego walls and realizing you can flow into the world and the world can flow into you is an extraordinarily positive thing if you know that that environment is safe, if you think that environment is dangerous it is beyond terrifying because your ego walls are the thing that defend you so i realized one of the things i had done is i had entirely rationally in the context of this trauma i had built up these very substantial ego walls and i was very resistant to lowering those ego walls because those were the things that had kept me alive and sane for so long but that that was no longer a productive way to live living behind walls is not as an adult when you're no longer in that kind of danger is not a happy or healthy way to be. So actually to, to get to those insights, to get to the point where I felt safe to lower those ego walls, it was partly about changing lots of aspects of my, of my life. But, but one was I came to this. So it was suggested to me by my, my friend, Rachel Schubert, who's does really great work on this a particular kind of meditation. Um, that 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 really helped me. So she, it's called sympathetic joy meditation. I know you've you done it, yes. yeah. I know you obviously know mudita. a lot. Yeah. So how would you do? You want to explain to the listeners what 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 that is, Dan? Because I think it's really useful for people to know.
0: So sympathetic joy is it's like the opposite of Schadenfreude. So Schadenfreude is when you take pleasure in other people's suffering. Sympathetic joy is when you take pleasure in their success. The ancient Indian subcontinental word for that in the language of Pali is Mudita. M-U-D-I-T-A. And it's a type of practice uh, in the Buddhist tradition. And and uh, I'll, I'll, I can let you take it from there. Or I can say more. It's up to you.
1: Yeah, the the, the, the technique, um, as Rachel taught it to me, and she teaches it to people in um, in in um, Illinois, if people want to look her up, was, so we live in an environment that I think of as basically like pouring ego-itching powder on us the whole time, right? <laughs> That's so good. <laughs> We're constantly being provoked and stirred to think egotistically, partly by advertising, partly by social media. If I just, as I did before, I'm not, that such a sense of superiority, as I did by literally just before we, I walked into me, Dan, I quickly look through Instagram, you immediately feel that jabbed sense of, oh my God, these people look so much better than I'm ever going to look. They're having more fun than I'm ever going to, you know, you can just feel, or even the people you love and admire, you're like, Oh, they've got you know. Oh, their following has gone up. or whatever you know. You, or everyone... they're at a
0: party and you're not invited. Exactly.
1: There's this constant kind of ego jabbing or ego itching um, that this environment creates. And by the way, it's designed to create. It's not an accident. It's designed to create that. Um, so remember, Rachel? I got to know Rachel here in New York when we were both here. We both we took a course together at NYU. And when we met, we both bo- we both bonded. We were both at slightly rough periods of, in our life. Um, and Ra- Rachel's marriage was ending and um, it ended in quite an unpleasant way. And I had kind of gone through some rough things and we kind of bonded in this rather kind of, um, I mean, she's a great person. This is no disrespect to her. She's a wonderful person, but we bonded in a rather negative way. We'd make jokes about other people in the class that were a bit bitchy, you know, that kind of thing. And then I didn't see Rachel for a while, about three years. And I went to visit her in in Illinois and she seemed completely different. I mean, was like, oh, what? she just all that kind of envy that we've both been experiencing seemed to be gone. And I said, oh, Rachel, what happened? And she said, oh, I, every day I do this thing. So she, she taught me how to do it. So um, sympathetic joy meditation is really the way I do it, as, as she taught it to me, is kind of simple. So you start, you close your eyes, you calm yourself, and you start by picturing someone you love, and you picture something great happening to them. And you just feel the joy of that. And that's relatively easy, right? Someone you love, nice thing happens to them, you're naturally going to feel joy. Then you picture someone you like but don't love. You picture something great happening to them. You imagine their physical reaction, imagine what they'll look like, imagine how they feel, how it will change their life. And you try to feel joy for that. And again, that's not so hard. Then you picture someone you know, but neither like nor dislike. I picture this someone who works in a store around the corner from where I live who seems perfectly pleasant, but I know them, right? don't even know this person's name. And you picture something wonderful happening to them. And again, you try to feel the joy of that. Then, and this is where it gets hard, you picture someone you don't like. And then you picture so- and you picture something really great happening for them. And you imagine how happy they will be. And you try to feel a sense of joy for them. And then you picture someone you really don't like. And you imagine something good happening for them and you try to feel joy for them and it's it's hard it's really hard to genuinely do it and not feel schadenfreude anger resentment is is difficult but over time it gets easier and as rachel put it to me it's a way of she does it in the morning and that's when i try to do it so it's a way of setting your intentions for how you intend to go through the day right are you going to go through the day in this ego-itching powder mode of you know, wanting, which the environment sets us up to do, which is your gain is my loss, right? We're in a race for scarce resources and I've got to clout. It's like we're rushing out of a burning building. I've got to clamber over you. I've got to fight for every moment of what I get. And if you get ahead of me, that places me in danger. Instead of priming yourself for that mentality, which frankly, just skimming through Instagram does to you. Um, what loving kindness meditation or sympathetic joy meditation these various schools of Buddhist meditation do is they say my intention is I'm going to go through the day trying to feel joy for the people around me. By the way, I certainly don't do this all the time. I don't want to make any big claims for having suddenly become enlightened. This is an attempt to set an intention. It doesn't guarantee you do it. Um, and and I remember Rachel saying to me, you know, your life, anyone's life, you know. Your joy is going to ebb and flow right there's going to be things that happen to you that are tragedies and just ordinary bad stuff um, but you 're always going to be surrounded by some joy and if you can find a way as these techniques and others show to take joy in the joy of others and not just yourself, not just your own ego that that will give you that it's like why would you not tap this incredible fuel and happiness that is all around you she gave me a really good example she one of the days i saw her she said oh i came here from the or maybe she had happened to a few weeks before i forget but she, she said oh yeah i was walking in the park and i saw a bride uh they were taking their wedding photos there was a bride and her groom and she said years ago when she first met me she would have looked at that and she would have been scanning for well how does this compare to my wedding right or oh look she's scanning for imperfections in the bride or the groom or to defend herself against those feelings of, you know, despair and pain. And she said, she, she'd she been doing something like joy meditation a lot and she looked at this bride and she just thought, you look so happy. This is so beautiful. These people are, are having such a beautiful moment. And it gave her joy rather than scratching at her and irritating her. Precisely because of that, that release from ego. And by the way, I actually think the release from ego, and people build up ego for all sorts of understandable reasons. It's not about reproaching people for that. I did. Lots of people did. Actually, in a funny way, taking joy in the tribe is actually more true to life. No one is an isolated individual, right? Anyone listening to this, if you've been left as an isolated individual as a child, you wouldn't be listening to this. You'd be dead, right? Right. Almost all of our activities are, in fact, in some way, collective. Um, individualism and egotistical ways of thinking don't only... Excessively egotistical, you need to have some sense of ego, but excessively egotistical ways of thinking, they aren't just, they don't just make us miserable. They're actually not true in some very basic way. You are not an isolated... Despite what American culture encourages us to think, that we're all John Wayne marching across the Wild West... By the way, even those cowboys would have died had they not been part of a tribe, right? Even even the icon of individualism is a lie. But we're all encouraged to think we're this isolated cowboy in um, the searchers or whatever. Barbaro um, man. Exactly. And what happened to him, right? The, we're, 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 we're all encouraged to think we are that. But but that's not... It doesn't just make us miserable. It's not even true to what we are.
0: I mean, it's yeah. It's also why people go crazy in solitary confinement but but let me let me ask you about your experience with this kind of meditation because you said quite I thought poignantly that that given your history of trauma the lowering of the ego walls that could happen through a powerful uh, a, um, a connection with nature or through sort of basic mindfulness meditation where uh, you're just watching your breath and then every time you get distracted you start again. Why is it that you think this sympathetic joy meditation helped lower your ego walls in a way that didn't create a a fight or flight
1: response? Yeah, that's a really important question. It's one that I tried to think about a lot, Dan. So I think it's partly that it was happening in concert with a lot of other things in my life, a kind of more general reorientation. I remember having a moment. I went to Berkeley to interview a really wonderful academic called Dr. Brett Ford. She's now in Toronto, actually, but um, who did this piece of research that in some ways is really obvious. And yet I've actually found quite profound and and, and, um, helped me to understand something I've been getting wrong a lot of the time. So her and lots of her colleagues in different places did this research. It's kind of basic research. Or rather, it's asking asking a very basic question. If you decided, or anyone listening to this show, decided... You were going to spend more time every day consciously and deliberately trying to make yourself happier. Would you become happier? The show's called 10% Happier, right? You decided you were going to try and do that consciously as an act of will. And you can dedicate more time to that. Would you become happier? I
0: would say it depends on the modality.
1: You're exactly right. And I think this research really reinforces a lot of what you talk about in your, in your work. So they did this research in four places. The United States, Japan, Russia and Taiwan. And what they found at first seems really weird. In the United States, if you try and make yourself deliberately happier, you do not become happier. In the other countries, if you try to make yourself happier, you do. And at first they're like, well, what, uh, it doesn't make sense. What's going on? So they looked at the research more. What they found was, and this goes exactly to what you're saying, um, in the United States, in the main, not you, not people listening to your podcast, I expect, but most Americans, if you try to make yourself happier, Generally, you do something for yourself, for your ego, right? You buy something, you go shopping, you treat yourself, whatever it is. In or, the other, Or you
0: crush your enemies at work.
1: Yeah, that's a really good idea. So yeah, or, or exactly, that's actually even more important. Or you, uh, exactly, you, you, what I would regard as negative achievements, you try to distance yourself from the, the kind of people by exactly doing them down. Um, in the other countries, in general if you tried to make yourself happier, you did something for someone else. You're something for your friends, your family, your community. So the kind of fancy way of putting it is we have an implicitly individualistic conception of what happiness is. They have an instinctively collective idea of what happiness is. And it turns out our vision of happiness just doesn't work, right? An individualist, we are a social species, right? I'm a, I spent a lot of time interviewing a wonderful man called professor John Cassiopo, who was the leading expert in loneliness on the world. He was a, a professor in Chicago, who was saying to me, Why do we exist? The key reason why we exist is because our ancestors on the savannas of Africa were really good at one thing. They weren't bigger than the animals they took down, they weren't faster than the animals they took down, but they were much better at banding together into groups and cooperating. Just like bees evolved to need a hive, humans evolved to need a tribe. We are the first humans ever to disband our tribes. There's a study that asks Americans how many close friends do you have who you could turn to in a crisis? when they started doing it years ago, the most common answer was five. Today, the most common answer is none. Half of all Americans asked, how many people know you well? Say, nobody, right? So you think about, we have disbanded our tribes. Um, and of course, that makes us feel terrible. And I, and I thought about this in relation to Dr. Ford's work, because, you know, I realised that for a long time, and it wasn't all, probably even most of the time, but a big part of how I would respond to my depressed feelings was through this individualistic conception of happiness, I would try to, I would feel bad, so I would try to, I would show off, I would make some egotistical achievement, I would do something clever, I would do something impressive in inverted commas, or I would try to do someone else down, or those kind of the ego pleasures, the individualistic ego pleasures. And I see now, that was a bit like, I always think about, I haven't been able to find this online, but I'm pretty sure, I, I remember seeing it years ago, I think it's Buster Keaton, the silent movie star. If anyone knows this, please send it to me. Um, it's some silent movie star anyway, where he's sinking in quicksand. His legs are sinking. So to get out the quicksand, he reaches in with his arms to pull out his legs, which of course means he sinks even faster. And then he reaches in with his head to pull out his arms, and then he's gone. And I realise in a way, that's what I would do, right? This, 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 Individualistic, ego-driven way of living made me feel bad, and when it—it's not the only thing that was going on, but it was one of the things that made me feel bad. And then to get out of that, I would double down on it. Right? I would uh, uh, that way of living made me feel bad, so I would try to pursue that way even more. And of course, it meant I sank even faster into the quicksand. Does that make sense?
0: Yeah. So what I'm just curious, listening to you talk. I mean, it's—it's it's very, very, very compelling. What would the proper strategy be? What would that have been for you, uh, as opposed to you know writing a book or that gets you positive reviews? That uh, you know you think after the you know the success of the book, you should ever, you should feel great, just like people who become famous and find themselves miserable, et cetera, et cetera. What would the proper route to happiness look like?
1: So this, uh, but this, obviously, this is a big part of the book, and I want to stress that what. Was essential for me at that time is not what would be essential for every listener. So, in in Lost Connections, my book, I tried to talk about the scientific evidence for all these these causes, and then scientists who pioneered solutions based on them. So, some of those causes played out for me, and others didn't. But they will play out for a lot of listeners. So, I'm talking about you. Ask me about myself. So, I'm answering that, but I don't want to overgeneralize from my own own experience. Understood. I would say there's, there's 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 two aspects. So one relates to the trauma, and prompt me to talk about that in a minute if, I, if we go off in another direction. One relates to, it's very close to what Dr. Ford discovered, I think, in many ways, but slightly at a right angle. It's work done by an, a completely incredible man called Professor Tim Kasser, who's at Knox College in Illinois. And um, So everyone knows that junk food has taken over our diets and made us physically sick. As you can see from my chins, I don't say that with any superiority. I came here from McDonald's.
0: Wait. Uh, <laughs> you, uh, you've made two references now to multiple chins. It's not entirely... You're well, not a you're large being too nice. man.
1: The, the, um, uh, but I had a real low point once with my diet. It led me to change my diet. In in 2009, I um, on Christmas Eve at lunchtime, I went to my local KFC in East London, uh, where I lived at the time, and... Um, I remember going in and saying my, my order, which is so disgusting, I wouldn't even repeat it. And the guy behind the counter said, oh, Johan, I'm really glad you're here. Wait a minute. And he goes off behind, like, where they fry the chicken and everything. And he came back with every member of staff who was there and a massive Christmas card in which they'd written, to our best customer. Uh. And they'd all written, like, little lovely notes about... Uh. And one of the reasons my heart sank is I suddenly thought, this isn't even the fried chicken shop I come to the most, right? <laughs> this is like a nightmare. So anyway, that was like a little bit of change. But so we all know why that's bad, right? Junk food appeals to the part of us that needs nutrition, but actually poisons us. In a similar way, a kind of junk values have taken over our minds and made us mentally sick. So for thousands of years, philosophers have said, if you think life is about money, and status and showing off, you're going to feel crap, right? That's not an exact quote from Confucius, but that is the gist, the gist of what he said, right? But the weirdly, Beatles said it too. Exactly. But weirdly, nobody had scientifically investigated this until Professor Kasser started to do it about 25 years ago. or no one had investigated it in as much depth as Professor Kasser. So Professor Kasser explained, everyone listening to your show, everyone in the world, is a mixture of two kinds of motive. So imagine if you play the piano in the morning. If you play the piano because you love it and it gives you joy, that experience gives you joy. That That's called an intrinsic motive to play the piano, right? You're not doing it to get anything out of it. You're doing it because that is what matters to you. That's an experience that is profound to you. Okay, now imagine you play the piano not because you love it, but in a dive bar that you hate to pay the rent or because your parents are massively pressuring you to be a piano maestro because that's their dream, or to impress a woman, I don't know, there might be some piano fetishist out there, or to post the clips on Instagram, whatever it is. That would be an extrinsic reason to play the piano. You're not doing it because that's the thing you love. You're doing it to get something out of it further down the line. So you're removed from the experience. You're trying to get something out of it. That's not just the flow and pleasure of it. Now, of course, we're all a mixture of both of these motives, right? Obviously you have to be to get through life and, you should be. But Professor Kasser showed a few things. Um, firstly, the more you are driven by these extrinsic values, what I came to think of as the equivalent of junk food, like junk values, the more likely you are to become depressed and anxious by quite a significant amount. We can talk about why in a minute. He also showed as a society, as a culture, we are much more driven by these extrinsic values values, by these junk values. There's been a really big shift every year. In fact, he showed with Professor Jill Twenge, who does fantastic work, that every year that the spending of American GDP, gross domestic product, every year that the percentage of American GDP spent on advertising goes up, teenage anxiety and depression go up. So we've got this kind of domination, growing domination of our minds by by junk values. I think this relates to, I'm going, actually I'm not going to be on Professor Kassar, he agrees with this. Um, I think this relates to a kind of deeper way of thinking about the crises and problems we face. I want to stress this isn't the only thing that's going on, but I think it's a big thing, which is everyone listening to your show knows they have natural physical needs. Obviously you need food, you need water, you need shelter, you need clean air. If I took those things away from you, you'd be in real trouble real fast but there's equally strong evidence that all human beings have natural psychological needs you need to feel you belong you need to feel your life has meaning and purpose you need to feel that people see you and value you you you, you know you need to feel you have a future that makes sense and this culture we've built is good at lots of things i had to go to the dentist the other day i'm glad to be alive in 2019 but we have been getting less and less good at meeting these deep underlying psychological needs and it's i want to stress again it's not the only thing that's going on but i think it's the key reason why this crisis is going up and up and in relation to that these junk values don't meet your deeper needs as a human being in some ways it's almost banal right everyone listening knows you're not going to lie on your deathbed and think about all the likes you got on instagram and all the shoes you bought you're going to think about moments of love and meaning and connection in your life and yet as professor kasser put it to me i thought really profoundly. We live in a machine that is designed to get us to neglect what is important about life. The more eighteen-month-old,
0: So whose benefit?
1: Well, more eighteen-month-old children know what the McDonald's M means than know their own last name. To give you a sense of how deeply imprinted. So, partly, it's you know, advertising is the ultimate frenemy. It's saying to you, "Oh Dan, I think you're great." I I love you. I think you're brilliant. If only you didn't stink. I mean, I think you're great, right? (laughs) If only you wore a bit more deodorant. I think you're great, right? You can see how that machinery works. Now, it's not the only thing, again, I want to stress, it's not the only factor in junk values, and it's certainly not the only factor in in depression. But I think so we've had this disconnection from meaningful values that is very deep in the culture, the spreading of junk values that's made us seek happiness in all the wrong places. That had definitely happened to me. I don't want to say that was all of my motivation because it wasn't. I think very few people are 100% those things. But one of the reasons why I could feel safe enough to lower my ego walls and do things like loving kindness meditation was because I went through a process of profoundly reorienting my values. So I was much more connected to meaningful work. I wrote a book about addiction, which is called Chasing the Scream, and then I wrote my other book, Lost Connections. And that it's not that my previous work wasn't meaningful to me, it was – but the the process of just having three years where you can set aside all the kind of ego jabbing and all the kind of selling yourself and all the, you know, how many people liked this? What's going on there? And just really go in depth and go all over the world. I mean, for Lost Connections, I went over 40,000 miles and just really connect with this deep question and try to find answers from these extraordinary and amazing people who I got to know all over the world. That was so meaningful to me, right? That 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 I had to, whatever that process was. It was the opposite of junk values. Now I'm not saying there aren't moments when ego comes in, and even in this situation where I think you know you're trained by your publicist, mention the name of your book three times. You know, <laughs> can, and, and it's funny. I'll when, do it
0: for you. But, you it, don't it's, have to do but that.
1: it's interesting, isn't it? When I do that, when I hear that voice coming to my head, I can feel myself becoming anxious <laughs> in a way that I don't become. Don't feel anxious when I'm explaining these when we were talking about the nature thing and Isabel Benkei and when, I, when I'm talking about these amazing people and it's, that's not ego. I want everyone to go and learn about Isabel. I want everyone to learn about Tim Cassar I want people to look up all the people I talked about that. I feel safe and affirmed. I feel like I'm doing a good thing. And then when I have to go into that mode, which you have to do a lot when you're promoting a book, um, which is not all bad, of course, partly a big part of why I want people to read the book is altruistic. I think I want them to know these things for altruistic reasons, but there's also an ego thing, Right. For all the obvious reasons, I want obvious ego reasons and and commercial reasons. I want people to read my book, and yet I can feel even in this interview and even in this switch between those modes, I suddenly feel anxious because when I'm affirming Isabel or Tim or loads of the other people we've talked about and the amazing insights that come from them, there's no doubt in my mind they are amazing people, right? And and the people and I have this expectation that people listening will clock these sound like great people, right? When when I'm in the when I'm do, in the self promotion mode, you start to think, but what if they don't like me? What if they don't? What? And you, you am, I, am I selling myself right? Am I doing this right? And and that is a mode of anxiety. And in a sense, one of the things I learned from Professor Kasser is we've all been moved much more into that selling mode in our daily lives. Right? That that we're all trained to be in that. Even if you think about my, my friend Naomi Klein has done incredible work on this for years. You know, when she wrote No Logo about how branding was contaminating us, as, as she says, she never even dreamed we'd get to the mode where everyone would be taught to talk about their personal brand. You know, she thought she was identifying this heinous corporate thing that was trying to hijack our consciousness. But she said it hijacked our consciousness to a degree she couldn't have imagined 22 years ago when she wrote No No Logo. So I think... A big part for me, to go back to the question you asked a million years ago before I gave this extremely long answer, um, part of it was one of the reasons I could feel safe enough to do this was I had a profound reconnection with meaningful values for me. And I stepped away from, not entirely, um, but I very significantly reduced the kind of ego itching powder that I was... If I think about, you know, periods when I would be on Twitter for an hour a day, two hours a day in my previous work when i was a newspaper journalist i mean that that the constant ego jabbing and and maelstrom of that was was um awful um so partly that the second thing is uh a different thing in relation to childhood trauma it's okay if i tell, tell you a story about how this was discovered by someone absolutely yeah and for a minute
0: You you have shown at a remarkable penchant to go to take us on big, big loops and then come back to the original (laughs) question. So at this point, you have my deep trust. So (laughs) go, go, go.
1: So uh, if I tell you this story, your listeners for a minute are going to think, why is he telling us this? This has nothing to do with what you're talking about. But I don't think you can understand it if you don't understand how this amazing man discovered this. So um, in the mid 1980s in San Diego, a doctor who I got to know later called Dr. Vincent Felitti. Uh, was asked to do a quite difficult job. He was approached by Kaiser Permanente, the big not-for-profit medical provider in California, and they were like, look, we've got a big problem. I hope you can help us. Obesity was going up and up every year, and nothing they were trying was working. So they said to him, they gave him quite a substantial budget, and they said, just do blue skies research, figure out what the hell we can do. So he starts to work with 250 severely obese people, people who weighed more than 400 pounds, who were in real, real physical danger of death uh, and certainly of all sorts of health complications. And he starts to work with them. And one day, Dr. Felitti had an idea that seems, and in many ways is, as he would tell you, quite stupid. He asked himself, what would happen if really obese people just stopped eating? And we gave them like vitamin C shots so they didn't get scurvy. We gave them loads of medical support would they actually burn through the fat supplies in their body and get down to a healthy weight so obviously with a ton of medical supervision he started to do this with these 250 people and incredibly in one sense at first it worked so there was a woman who i'm going to call susan to protect her medical confidentiality who went down from being more than 400 pounds to £138. It's incredible, right? And people, her family, are saying, like, you've saved her life. She's thrilled. And then one day, something happened that no one expected. Susan cracked. She went to KFC. Actually, she didn't, I don't think she did go to KFC. That's a projection on my part. She went to some fast food place and she starts obsessively eating and quite quickly. She's not back where she was, but she's back at a dangerous weight. And Vincent, Dr. Felitti, called her in and he's like, Susan, what happened? She looks down. She's very ashamed. She says, I don't know. I don't know. And he said, tell me about that day that you cracked. Did anything happen that day that didn't happen any other day? It turns out there was something happened that day that had never happened to Susan. She'd been in a bar and a man had hit on her. Not in a horrible, predatory way, in quite a nice way. But she felt really frightened. She'd gone and started obsessively eating. That's when Dr. F- it occurred to Dr. Felitti to ask something he'd never asked a patient. He said, when did you start to put on your weight? For Susan, it was when she was 11. He said, well, did anything happen when you were 11 that didn't happen when you were 9 or 14? Anything that year? And Susan looked down and she said, yeah, that's when my grandfather started to rape me. Dr. Felitti interviewed everyone in the program. He discovered that 55% of them had put on their extreme weight in the aftermath of being sexually abused or assaulted, which is such a high number, obviously so much higher than the general population had been sexually abused, he's just like, what is this? How can that be? Susan explained it to him really well. She said, overweight is overlooked, and that's what I need to be. Dr. Felitti discovered that this thing that seems so irrational, obesity, and obviously is bad for you, was performing a positive function, right? It was protecting these people from sexual attention that they had very good reason to be um, afraid of. But this is a small study. It's 250 people. You don't want to make huge generalizations based on that. So Dr. Felitti went to the CDC, the Center for Disease Control, who fund a huge amount of medical research. And he got a really big budget to do a much bigger study. Everyone who came for medical help to San Diego, in San Diego, to Kaiser Permanente, for an entire year, for anything, headaches, schizophrenia, broken leg, the whole lot, was given two questionnaires. First questionnaire said, did any of these bad things happen to you when you were a child? Things like physical abuse, sexual abuse, neglect, extreme cruelty. Second part asked, have you had any of these problems as an adult? Initially, it was just going to say obesity, but then they added a load of other things like depression, suicide attempts, injecting drug use. When the CDC added up the figures, I spoke to some people who did this, at first they were like, there's some mistake here. For every category of childhood trauma you experienced, you were two to four times more likely to be obese, depressed, addicted. But when they got into the multiple categories, the figures were just staggering. If if you had had six categories of childhood trauma, you were 3,100% more likely to have attempted suicide and 4,600% more likely to be an injecting drug user. I mean, you just don't get figures like that very often in, in, in science. I remember Dr. Robert Ander, one of the scientists who worked on this, said to me, it made him realise, when you're confronted with someone who appears to be doing something so irrational, depression, anxiety, addiction, we need to stop asking what's wrong with you and start asking what happened to you. But the reason this leads to this question about how I came to be able to meditate is I remember the first time I went to see Dr. Felitti in San Diego. And he's in his, um, I think he's in his early 80s now. He was when I met him. A little bit older now. If, if you met Dr. Felitti, you would really like him, Dan. He is a lovely, good man. Like, one of the most admirable people I've met. And I remember being so angry w- at what he was saying that I... I actually ended the interview early because I was worried I was going to start shouting. And I remember going to the beach in San Diego, which is obviously gorgeous, and walking up and down the beach and thinking, why are you so angry with this lovely old man who's done all this amazing work that's helped so many people? And like, like we were talking about before, I had experienced these very extreme acts from an adult in my life over a long period of time when I was a child. And it made, I realised on the beach in San Diego one of the reasons why I had been so committed to this overly biological story about depression and anxiety, right? I want to stress there's real biological components, but I had been drawn to this story that said it's all about the biology, it's just a problem in your brain. And I realised there, it's like, oh, you don't want to think about this stuff, right? I didn't want to think about it at all. I didn't want to give this individual power over me now. I didn't want to think this, was st- this, this these experiences of abuse were still playing out in my life. But one of the reasons I'm glad I stayed with this deeper way of thinking about depression is because of what Dr. Felitti discovered next. So if you had indicated on your form that you had experienced some form of childhood trauma, your doctor was told, don't call them back. But next time the patient comes back in, say to them something like this. It was a script. I see that when you were a child, you were sexually abused or whatever the nature of the abuse was. I'm really sorry that happened to you. That should never have happened. Would you like to talk about it? And 40% of people didn't want to talk about it, but 60% of people did, and they wanted to talk about it on average for five minutes. And then it was random. Some of them were told, I can refer you to a therapist to talk about it more. What was incredible in the follow-up research was just those five minutes of an authority figure saying... I'm really sorry this happened to you. That should never have happened. That alone led to a really significant fall in depression and anxiety. And the people who referred to a therapist got even more. Remember, one old woman wrote to Dr. Felitti. She was in her 80s. She'd been sexually abused as a child. She said, I'm so glad you asked. I thought I was going to die and no one would ever know. And the reason why this causes a fall in depression and anxiety, the best evidence suggests, is part of a growing body of evidence, from people like Professor Steve Coles at UCLA, who I just saw, or Professor James Pennebaker at Florida State University. It's it's related to this research about shame. It's not the trauma that destroys you. It's the shame about the trauma. And giving people a place where they can release that shame is an antidepressant, right? Mm. One of the things I want to argue is we need to expand our concept of what an antidepressant is, Anything that reduces depression and anxiety should be regarded as an antidepressant, and God knows we need them. Um, for some people, that will include chemicals. Um, but we need to, if that was the only solution that we needed, we wouldn't be seeing this crisis rising year after year because we've been massively increasing chemical antidepressants year after year, prescriptions year after year, and they're giving some relief to some people to be sure, but they're clearly not solving the problem as we can see by looking around us. Um, we need to expand our concept of what an antidepressant is. So, for example, people who've been through severe childhood trauma, giving them a place where they will see they'll be loved and held and they can release that shame is an antidepressant. And I think, you know, it, it, it's been quite hard. that My book came out, whatever it was, a, a bit over a year ago now. And it's, at first, it, it, it was really difficult. It was difficult writing that part of the book. It was by far the hardest part of the book to write, and it's been difficult Talking about it, but one of the reasons why I do talk about it is because um, you can see I can I can see when I talk about this that no sane person reacts to hearing these things with the voice of the abuser. Right? Of course, when you're abused you you internalize these voices, right? You think it's your fault, you put it on yourself, you don't deserve good things, you don't deserve to be treated well. And of course, only mad people or not mad, terribly damaged people um, react that way when they hear people talk about it. Most people react with the lovely, sympathetic face you're doing now. Right. Um, And and you can feel the, the internalized shame reduce as you do that. So it is in itself healing. So I think part of why I could come to meditation was having learned these things. I could talk about it to other people. I could release this feeling of shame And that made me feel safer, right? When you see, oh, you're not actually in an environment where these... And of course, at some level, intellectually, rationally, I knew that, of course. There was never a time as an adult when I would have thought most of the people, or even a significant proportion of the people around me, would have supported or condoned child abuse. Of course not. But when you kind of feel that emotionally, you feel you are in a safer environment. And when you feel you're in a safer environment emotionally, you can be more receptive to lowering your ego walls because you you don't feel you're in a place that's going to, yeah, savage you the minute you allow yourself to be vulnerable.
0: More 10% happier after this. This show is brought to you by BetterHelp. I got to tell you, I feel so much better when I talk about my anxiety instead of keeping it bottled up. you uh, I think quite movingly about the, the fact that you've struggled with depression for so long, which sends you off on this sort of quest to solve the mystery of why are we seeing epidemic levels of depression? What can be done about it? How's your level of depression now as we sit here?
1: I try to be quite careful in the book and how I talk about this publicly because – some of the causes of depression and anxiety that I was taught by these amazing people are quite deep in our culture and we're going to have to have deep cultural change in order to challenge them. So, for example, because of deep structural changes in the economy, through no fault of their own, half of all Americans have less than $500 in savings for if a crisis comes along. Now, that is going to make you really depressed, right? A lot of people. It's going to make, a, it's going to make pretty much everyone in that situation more unhappy than they should be. And some people it's going to make really depressed. And then they go for help and they're told, "Oh, this is just a problem in your brain. Some of them are told that. And there are, of course, better doctors who give more sophisticated um, answers. So I'm, I try to be careful in both truthfully telling my story and the journey that I went on, but also not saying, well, I did this, dear reader, and you can too. Because the truth is, I mean, one of my closest relatives is a struggling single mother who works every hour she can to keep her kids in their home, gets home and is so tired she can barely watch the television. So for me to say to her, well, the main thing you need to do now is this list of pursuing all these social changes. Be or in nature. Exactly. Well, she's like, yeah, I'd love to do that. Tell me when in the 45 hours a week that I work and don't get to see my children that I'm meant to go and be on a beach, right? Great. I'd love to do it, right? Um. So part of... um. So I want to be careful. It would be an insult to her. It would be an insult to some people listening to your show to go, well, I did this, dear reader, and you can too, because I had a lot of resources to change my life. So a big part of the book is about how do we change our society so that more people are set free to make the changes they need to make. And I'll talk about one specific example in a minute. There's many. But in my own case, yeah, I haven't been depressed for quite a long time now.
0: I think, based on the site, and you. So no more bed, no more Paxil, no more meds.
1: I oh know I stopped them in 2011. Because um, for me, I mean, my experience was quite normal. Uh, I, I was surprised to learn from the research. The best long-term research um, into chemical antidepressants is called the STAR D trial, um, which follow. It's a really simple trial, actually. It's one of the best ones because pharmaceutical companies can't rig it. You just follow people who go to their doctor with depression and are given chemical antidepressants to see what happens over time. And some people do get relief and it's really important to stress that. And my advice is not that people stop if they're getting relief from it, which some people really are, but most people do become depressed again. Um, I think, and I'm going beyond what the STAR D trials shows now, but I think precisely because this is a problem that goes deeper than biology, dealing with some of the biological aspects gives some relief, but isn't solving the problem. Right. And I, I remember, um I found that again after the childhood trauma. That was the hardest part to learn because I was like, "Well, this is the one solution this culture has given me to feeling so bad." And you're telling me some of the leading experts at Harvard Medical School and other places who've done the best research on this thing, right? You're telling me it does give some help, but and some people really do get relief from it, but. I'm not that unusual. And actually, I got relief initially, but over time, I just became depressed again. That was quite shocking. Um, One person really helped me to think about this differently. I went to interview this South African psychiatrist I love called Dr. Derek Summerfield, who happened to be in Cambodia in 2001 when they first introduced chemical antidepressants in that country. And Derek was like, uh, the local Cambodian doctors didn't know what antidepressants were, So they asked him, and he said, "What? Explain to them." And they they said, uh, "Oh, we don't need them. We've already got antidepressants." And he said, "What do you mean?" He thought they were going to talk about like a herbal remedy, right, like Saint John's Wort, ginkgo biloba, something like that. Instead, they told him a story. There was a farmer in their community who worked in the rice fields, and one day he stood on a landmine left over by the from the war with the United States, and he got his leg blown off. So they gave him an artificial limb. They're good at that in Cambodia. And he goes back to work in the rice fields a few months later. Apparently, it's really painful to work underwater when you've got an artificial limb. I'm guessing it was fairly traumatic for obvious reasons. He's back in the field where he gets blown up. The guy started to cry all day, didn't want to get out of bed. He developed classic depression, right? He refuses to get out of bed. At which point, the Cambodian doctors explained to Dr. Summerfield, well, then we gave him an antidepressant and he said, what was it? They explained that they went and sat with him. They listened to him. They realised that his depression had causes in his life. They figured if they bought him a cow, he could become a dairy farmer. He wouldn't be in this position that was causing him so much distress. So they bought him a cow. Within a couple of weeks, his crying stopped. Within a couple of months, his depression was gone. They said to Dr. Summerfield, so you see, doctor, that cow, that was an antidepressant. That's what you mean, right? Now, if you've been raised to think about depression the way we have, that it's entirely or primarily a problem with your biology, that sounds like a joke. I went to my doctor for an antidepressant. She gave me a cow. But what those Cambodian doctors knew intuitively is what the leading medical body in the world, the World Health Organization, has been trying to tell us for years. Your pain makes sense. If you're depressed, if you're anxious, you're not crazy. You're not weak. You're not a machine with broken parts. You're a human being with unmet needs. And what you need is a lot of love and practical support to get those deeper needs met as a society and as yeah, a culture. But If you
0: go to a doctor, our system is not set up. Uh, you said before, if all you've got is $500 in, uh, in, in, your, in, in your life savings, our system is not set up to you know, give you a healthy 401k as your prescription. All we can do, as far as I understand, is give you Paxil or the like.
1: So I think there's two things to say in response to that. Firstly, and it's important to not criticise doctors over this, we have given doctors one lever to pull. And that lever does give some relief to some people. Well, too,
0: because there's talk therapy and yeah. then there's also... I mean, a lot of
1: people can't get talk therapy because their insurance packages. Yeah, but you're right. Talk therapy is an option for some people in this country, actually shockingly few, but some. And mostly what they're referred to as cognitive behavioural therapy, which has some value, but is based on a philosophy that the problem is the way you think about your life. Um, and you need to adjust your thought patterns. There's some truth in that for some people. But imagine saying to that guy in the rice field in Cambodia, you know, the issue here is you need to change your thought patterns. Well, maybe, but what he needed was a cow, right? Um, in a similar way.
0: Is there not a third level? I mean, can you not send people to a social worker who can help you with your life situation if you're have gotten if you with an abusive spouse or something like that?
1: Yeah, all the budgets for that have been massively cut year after year. Some people are lucky to get that help. There's not no social provision in this country. But I mean, look at even very extreme cases. Let's think about Adam Lanza, who carried out the horrific Sandy Hook massacre. I mean, his family, uh, this guy had very severe mental illness, much, much more extreme than what we're talking about. Um, His family begged for help and anything. So even if you're, you know, literally afraid that your son might carry out a massacre, you don't get any help. So it gives you a sense of how much people who've got more kind of ordinary depression. And they were wealthy. Yeah, exactly. So I think there's two aspects of, in response to what you said about, you know, doctors can't give this help. So firstly, I would say, think about um, the biggest cause of death in this country, although it's about to be overtaken by suicide and opioid deaths, which is cars, right? So everyone listening will know someone who's died in a car accident. And as a society, how do we deal with car accidents? Partly what we do is when people are in car accidents, they go to the emergency room and the doctors and nurses do incredible and heroic work, patching them back together if they possibly can. As people are heroes, they deserve a huge amount of credit. But that is not our primary response as a society to the problem of car accidents. We have driving tests. We have speed limits. We have seat belts, We have airbags. We arrest DUIs, right? So... Actually, we see with car accidents, while doctors are part of the picture, actually, driving instructors uh, people who give people driving tests save far more people than doctors, right? Because we deal with the problem downstream as much as we can. Doesn't deal with it enough, and I'm in favour of all sorts of other car safety things. I like what Bill De Blasio has done here in New York, for example, on that. Um, but you know, the society precisely because this is a social problem. We have a big social solution, not just an individual medical solution. If you look back at the debate about cars when they first come in, that it was just an individual solution. They said, well, we'll teach people to drive safely and they sh- they just need to be responsible. Now we have a much bigger response. We don't just leave it to the individual. I think one of the cruelest things we do with depression and anxiety is we leave it just to isolated, depressed people and, if they're lucky, their families and their doctors to solve the problem, when actually, you know... It's not that, I mean, depression is, along with opioid addiction and suicide, unbelievably high in West Virginia at the moment. That's not because people in West Virginia are individually, biologically broken, although some of them will have greater biological sens- sensitivity to these problems. That's because, look at what we've done to West Virginia. It, people there have been deprived of the most elementary things that make life meaningful to them. Meaningful work, um, financial security, uh, meaningful fact, all sorts of things, right? Right. Um, So, I would say, firstly, doctors can't solve the problem because it's much bigger than just an issue of individual medicine. But even within that, one of the heroes of my book is a doctor who's pioneered a different approach that's spreading uh, gradually over many parts of the world. And I think um, doctors here should be really championing, and some wonderful doctors are. So he's called Dr. Sam Everington. uh, And he's a general practitioner in East London, a poor part of East London, where I lived for a long time as you can tell from my weird Downton Abbey accent. Um, and and Sam, Sam was really uncomfortable because he had loads of patients coming to him with depression and anxiety. And like me, he's not opposed to chemical antidepressants, but he could see two things. Firstly, loads of the people he was treating were depressed and anxious for perfectly understandable reasons. Like, they were really lonely, for example. And secondly... He could see that most of the people he was giving these drugs to were getting a bit of relief, but it wasn't solving the problem. So Sam decided to pioneer a different approach. One day, a woman came to see him called Lisa Cunningham, who I got to know pretty well later. And Lisa had been shut away in her home with just crippling depression and anxiety for seven years. And Sam said to Lisa, don't worry, I'm going to carry on giving you these drugs. I'm also going to prescribe something else. There was an area behind the suite of doctor's offices that was... um, just scrubland. He said to Lisa, what I'd like you to do is come and turn out a couple of times a week. I'm going to come too because I've been quite anxious. We're going to meet with a group of other depressed and anxious people and together we'll turn this scrubland into something nice maybe. We'll figure out something to do together. The first time the group met, Lisa was literally physically sick with anxiety. But the group starts talking and they're like, what could we do? These inner city East London people, they don't know anything about gardening. They decide to learn gardening. They can teach themselves gardening. They start watching YouTube videos. They start reading books. Um, and as as we were talking about before, there's a lot of evidence exposure to the natural world. Even gardening doesn't have to be, you know, the desert or the beach or rainforest. Park. Exactly. The, there's some evidence, that lots of evidence that exposure to the natural world is a really powerful antidepressant. But something even more important started to happen. They start to form a tribe. Mm. They start to form a group. They start to care about each other. If one of them doesn't go up, show up, they go looking for him or her. And they did what we do when we're tribes as human beings. They started to solve each other's problems. But to give you an extreme example, this is the most extreme example. It's not typical. But one of the people in the group had been thrown out by his wife and he was sleeping on the local bus at night, right? They were just, the drivers would let him sleep on it. They were like, everyone else was like, well, of course you're depressed if you're sleeping on a bus. They started, um, they helped him to get a home, right? It was the first time they had done something for someone else in years and it made them feel really good. The way Lisa put it to me, as the garden began to bloom, we began to bloom. There was a study in Norway of a very similar program that found it was more than twice as effective as chemical antidepressants in moving people on the measure of depression, which is called the Hamilton scale. I think for a kind of obvious reason, right? it was dealing with some of the reasons why they were so depressed and anxious in the first place. And this is something I saw all over the world from San Francisco to Sydney to Sao Paulo. The most effective strategies for dealing with depression and anxiety are the ones that deal with the reasons why we feel this way in the first place. And so that is something that a doctor could do. And of course, an individual doctor listening to this can't suddenly choose to do that. You have to have a choice within the system to do that. But it's, much cheaper than drugging people, much it costs almost nothing uh, much cheaper than drugging people and actually, the evidence shows more effective in a huge number of cases so you end up with this question of why don 't we have a system built around those insights right so what we 've done is with mental health we 've basically taken the model from you know um, infectious disease right so which, by the way, is a staggeringly successful and brilliant model that I admire more than I can say. Right? So, you know, individual disease—you know how it works. You identify a pathogen, uh, let's say you've got a strep throat or something, and you treat—you know—you treat that that problem with a medicine. Right? That is amazingly effective. Think about smallpox. Smallpox killed tens of millions of human beings. Through an amazing vaccination campaign, there has there's hasn't been no human being since whatever it is—the nineteen seventies who has even caught smallpox, right? So that that model of infectious disease is hugely successful. It has not worked that well when transferred to mental health because mental health isn't like that, right? It's not based on just identifying a simplistic biological pathogen and getting rid of the biological pathogen. There's these much more complex causes. Actually, far from being a kind of aberration, these responses, things like depression and anxiety, while agony, are meaningful, right? They're in fact meaningful signals. This is one of the key things, key reorientations that I made while working on Lost Connections. I came to think, and this was a hard insight to come by because my memories of depression were so bad, but I think these crises, these rising crises, depression, anxiety, you and I are speaking a week after the Centre for Disease Control announced that we now have the highest level of suicide in American history. And that doesn't include opioid-related deaths, which are measured separately. So think about how big that crisis is. As the, um, Sir Angus Dayton, has done one of the best studies on this with Professor Anne Case, said, these are deaths of despair, right, the opioid deaths. What we've been doing up to now is we've been taking these signals that people are sending us, that they are in terrible pain, and I think we've been insulting those signals, often with the best of intentions. We've been either saying these signals are signs of weakness or that they're just a problem with people's brains. And how mysterious that the brains of the people in West Virginia just mysteriously malfunction so much more than the brains of the people on the faculty at Harvard. And I think we need to stop insulting these signals and start listening to them because they're telling us something. I think if we had listened to these signals, if we'd listened to the fact that, is recent, you know, 10, 15 years ago, we were at the point where almost a third of all middle-aged women in the United States were having to drug themselves to get through the day. If we had listened to that, I don't think we would have gotten to the terrible political situation we're in now, for example. I certainly don't think we would have got to the opioid crisis. I don't think if if we thought, well, why are so many people in such pain? How can we deal with it Um, through a big program of, of, of deep reconnection, right? People need to be reconnected with meaning. They need to be reconnected with the people around them. They need to be reconnected with security of all kinds. And can I give you a specific example of a, a kind of policy? Yeah, well, Sorry. I'm just
0: curious because, like, this is what you're talking about. You know, as I sit here, it makes a lot of sense. It's a very powerful point that this this should be looked at as a signal. But what you're calling for a big, I guess, society-wide, I suppose, I suppose, uh, uh, paid for by the government program of Reconnection. What, what does that look like? Do you have any optimism that it actually happened outside of maybe Scandinavia?
1: Yeah. Uh, I have a lot of optimism about this. I think a lot about – so as everyone listening will have noticed this – they need me to tell them the center of American politics has collapsed, right? What was regarded as the center. I remember as a woman I think about all the time in the run-up to the 2016 election, I was in Cleveland in Ohio with a group of people who were trying to get out the vote. And there was this street in West Cleveland that we were going down and a third of the houses were abandoned. A third still had people living in them and a third had actually been demolished. And there was this woman we knocked on her door. And this woman, I would have guessed by looking at her, was 60. I discovered by talking to her that she was the same age as me. I was 37 at the time. and She was quite articulate, extremely angry. And she made this she said this thing that I thought about a lot. She was talking about what the area used to be like for her parents and grandparents, how they left school when they were 16. They got good jobs. They had reasonable lives. And she meant to say when I was young. What she actually said is when I was alive. And it really knocked me back. She didn't even notice she'd done it. I remember I was with this wonderful guy called Dave Fleischer, who's from the Los Angeles LGBT Center. And I remember me and Dave just kind of reeling back. And I thought, yeah, that's how a lot of people feel in this culture. When I was alive. And they're not wrong. That's not some irrational spasm. She has been deprived of the things that make life meaningful through no fault of her own. She's right. Gap between her grandparents who had decent lives in her. She didn't do anything to choose that. Right? Um, and one of the advantages of the political system, where I'm sure people can guess what my politics are from listening to this, but one of the advantages... So i would step back from that for a second. One of the disasters... Of what's been happening in the last few years is we have been responding to that woman and many people like her by just saying you're stupid and racist, right? And I think that's really, I think it's cruel to her and I think it's deepening the problem, right? That woman is in a lot of pain for perfectly good reasons. Now I don't agree with the political option she wanted for for all the reasons that are obvious and we don't need to talk about but the Political centre collapsed because the system is not working. We've created a society that doesn't meet people's psychological needs right across the board. And I want to stress there are good things about this society as well, lots of good things. I mean, it's why I'm here. But if you create a society where people's psychological needs are not met, that will manifest in all sorts of ways. Now, one of the good things about that situation is If the house is on fire and all the alarms are going off, the case for change becomes easier to make, right? It's not like what's happening is most Americans are saying, I think things are just great the way they are. I like having less than $500 in the bank for if an emergency comes along. Things are working out well for me. Or
0: nobody who knows me well.
1: Exactly. It's not like you've got a situation where most people are satisfied and the case for radical change sounds like some kooky, you know thing coming from left field, right? Actually, most people are open to quite radical ideas about how we need to change the way we live. And actually there's a broader degree of agreement across the left-right spectrum on a lot of things than people think, right? Um that that I mean we can go through a whole a whole range of them if you want, but let me give you a specific example of a specific policy that um I mean for, and by the way I want to stress you talked about government spending, social prescribing, for example, which is a very powerful antidepressant, costs less than what we do now, right? It is cheaper to get people to do gardening programs than to drug them. Uh, Now, there are sectional interests who lose out in that. There's a $10 billion industry in getting that woman, Lisa, and people like her to, take a pill and there's a zero billion dollar industry in getting her to go gardening. I mean, maybe it's not zero billion dollars because there are, some people make money out of selling right. plants or whatever. Home but Depot,
0: maybe. Yeah, 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 exactly.
1: But Home Depot doesn't have the same lobbying power as, you know, GlaxoSmithKline, right? The, the, um, I don't think that's, by the way, I want to stress, I don't think Big Pharma is the only reason why we've gotten into this, and I, I'm happy to talk about the other, I actually think Big Pharma is a relatively small part of how we end up in this, in this, um, kind of cul-de-sac, but, 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 um, so let me give you an example of a specific thing, right? So having stressed that some things were actually cheaper than what we're doing, this is that is more expensive than what we do now, but there's very good evidence that it has a powerful antidepressant effect, and I think it's worth doing for all sorts of reasons. Um, in the 1970s, the Canadian government chose a town, seemingly genuinely at random, which I think is kind of amazing. It's a town called Dauphin in Manitoba. People who know it, it's about three hours out of Winnipeg. And they decided to do an experiment. They chose a really big group of people in, in Dorfim and they said, from now on, we're going to give you a guaranteed basic income. There is nothing you have to do in return for it and there's nothing you can do that means we're going to take it away unless you commit a crime and go to prison. We just want you to have a secure life. We want you to be happy. You're a citizen of our country. And so they started giving them, it was the equivalent, if you adjust just for inflation and you translate it into US dollars, about 12,000 US dollars a year. So you're not going to live well on $12,000 a year, but you're also not going to become homeless. You're not going to be so insecure that you're not going to be able to eat. Or
0: And if you have a job, you can save and get beyond the $500.
1: Exactly, because you want to stress this isn't like a top-up. Yeah. You get this whether you work or whether you don't. Uh, and this was monitored. A person who later calculated out all the figures who I interviewed was a, a totally amazing person called Dr. Evelyn Forge. And they found many things. Actually, nobody gave up work, which I thought was interesting. Um, partly because it's not such a huge amount of money, but partly because people want to work, right? Some people uh, took slightly longer to look for jobs because they had the luxury that they could like hold out for a better job. Overall work standards improved because bosses knew people could leave, right? Um, mm-hmm. More, uh, The only fall in employment was some uh, uh, women spent longer studying and some younger people spent longer studying than they had before, which is obviously a positive thing for the society. Um, But The most interesting thing for the purposes of what we're talking about is, let's look at severe mental illness. Mental illness that was so bad that people had to be shut away in mental hospitals. Even that fell by 9%. Mm. Right? That's pretty a big fall. You won't find a drug that causes that level of fall, right? And of course, in some level (laughs) I feel like some of what I'm doing with this is giving people permission to know unbelievably obvious things. If you are really financially insecure, it turns out you're more likely to be depressed and anxious, right? And in some ways, if you'd asked my grandmother, who was working class and really struggled, her job was to clean toilets. Her husband died when she was very young, and he was very young. You know, my grandmother was a had a hard life. If I said to my grandmother, hey, do you think being financially insecure makes you more or less happy? She would have, you know, why are you asking me such a stupid question? She would have said, right? And I think a lot of the things I learned, not all of them, but a lot of the things I learned, my grandmother would have regarded as Really, really and your grandmother, I suspect, would have regarded as really, really obvious, right? But but so if you think about that, that universal basic income program, Dr. Fourget said to me, he studied it, that's an antidepressant, right? Um and talking about, you know, now that is expensive, but let us remember, this is a country where the as as Bernie Sanders keeps pointing out, the three richest people in this country now have more money than the bottom half of the country, right? Now that is not sensible distribution of wealth that anyone including um, Republicans who are admir- many, you know, many of them are very admirable people that I mean ordinary Republican voters would not choose that, right? If we were starting from scratch and we were designing a society, I don't think most people would say, you've got a seesaw let's put three people at one end and make them even with the bottom 170 million people or whatever the figure is um, So, again that is proven to be a very effective antidepressant I think most people, when they hear that, see why, for obvious reasons. And that's a big change. But Everyone listening to this podcast has lived through big changes, right? It's easy to think, oh, you know, this is all very nice, but nothing's ever going to change. When people say that to me...
0: Look what happened with gay marriage and how fast that moved.
1: Well, that, that was exactly what I was going to say. When people say it to me, I think about one of my closest friends, a wonderful person who lots of your listeners will know, uh, his work called Andrew Sullivan. He's a great journalist. Yes,
0: he is. I've long wanted to have him on the show. Oh, you'd
1: love to have Yeah, I'll put you in touch with him because he's, yeah, he would love to do it. So in 1994, Andrew was diagnosed as HIV positive, right? People will remember this is the height of the AIDS crisis. Um, there's no hope in sight. People are dying all around. Andrew's best friend, Patrick, had just died of AIDS. And Andrew quit his job and he goes to a little town, a little gay town in Cape Cod called Provincetown yeah. to die. Yeah. And he decides in Provincetown, he's going to do one last thing before he dies. Um, He's going to write a book about a crazy utopian idea, an idea that no one's ever written a book about before. And he's like, look, I'm not going to live to see this ever happen. No one alive now will ever live to see it happen. But maybe somewhere down the line, someone will pick up this idea. The idea he wrote the first book to ever propose, ever proposing, was gay marriage. And when I get depressed as a, about the political situation, as I obviously do fairly often at the moment, I try to imagine going back in time and saying to Andrew, OK, Andrew, you're not going to believe me, but what is it, 23, 24 years from now, A, you're going to be alive. That would have seemed inconceivable to him. B, you'll be married to a man. They will have introduced that. C, I will be with you when the Supreme Court of the United States quotes from this book you're writing now, making it mandatory for every state in the United States to introduce gay marriage. And the next day you will be invited to dinner with the president of the United States at a White House lit up in the colours of the rainbow flag to celebrate what you and so many other people have achieved. Oh, and by the way, that president you're going to have dinner with, he's going to be black, right? Every aspect of that story would have sounded like ludicrous science fiction. It happened. Andrew is available to be a guest on your show, right? Uh, I can go and get married now um, as a gay man. Everyone listening to this program has lived through incredible changes, and there's a temptation to discount the positive change and only notice the negative change. And people will have noticed there have been lots of negative changes of late. But but that is a very disempowering story and, and not a truthful story. I mean, I think about something as simple as, the women listening don't need me to mansplain this to them, but... My grandmothers, when they got married, weren't allowed to have bank accounts in their own names, right? They had to have a joint one with their husband. That's not that long ago. In in the scale of human history, that's like yesterday, right? Things that would be unthinkable to us now. If you explained to a 15-year-old girl, you can't have a bank account of your own when you grow up, they would have been, you know, I mean, they wouldn't understand what the hell you were talking about, right? Because we've had so much progress. So progress happens when people band together and fight for something better. And everyone listening to this program is much more powerful than they have been told they are. And one thing, I, one thing I really think we need to do is take all these indicators of distress, depression, anxiety, addiction, and use them as fuel to fight for something better. Because if this pain is just pathologized, what can you do with that? If you're just told, yes, yeah, just a problem in your brain, right? Uh, and you can drug yourself, but most people who drug themselves will become depressed again, you'll get some relief. But where can you go with that, right? But, but it, apart from the fact that it's, it's only a very limited part of the truth, right? It's real. It, there are real things that happen in your brain, of course, and I write about them in Lost Connections. But, you know, can I just tell you about, I was taught so much for this book by so many scientists and doctors, but the people who taught me the most, We're not scientists and doctors. It was a particular place. Can I tell you what happened there? Because um, in the summer of 2011, on a big anonymous housing project in Berlin, a woman called Nuria Cengiz climbed out of her wheelchair and put a sign in her window. She lived on the ground floor and the sign said something like, I got a notice saying I'm going to be evicted from my apartment next Thursday night. So on Wednesday night, I'm going to kill myself. Now, like a lot of housing projects in the United States, this is a big, anonymous, slightly scary place. It's called Cotty. No one knew anyone. Uh, It's actually a kind of weird area. It's a poorer neighbourhood where there are only three kinds of people who really live there. There were recent Muslim immigrants like this woman, Nuria. There were gay men and there were punk squatters. And as you can imagine, these three groups don't want to get to know each other. No one really knew anyone. So people are walking past Nuria's window. They see this sign. Lots of people are concerned. They knock on her door. They say, do you need anything? Nuri said, screw you, I don't want any help, I'm going to kill myself. She shut the door in their faces. People start talking outside her apartment, people who'd never met. And one of them had an idea. You might remember this is the summer of Tahrir Square, the uprising in Egypt. One of them had seen it on the news and suddenly had this idea. And lots of the people who live in Koti were pissed off because their rents were going up and up and up and up as well. And lots of people were being evicted. This was very personal to them. And one of them had an idea. There's a big thoroughfare that goes through the centre of Cotty into the centre of Berlin. And one of them said, you know, if we just blocked the road for a day uh, and we protest, the media will probably come. There'll be a bit of a fuss about Nuria's story. There might even be some pressure to keep our rents down. Why don't we try it? So the Saturday came and they blocked the road and loads of the residents of Cotty protest. And Nuria was like, I'm going to kill myself. I might as well let them wheel me into the middle of the street. She's wheeled into the middle of the street. And they protest that day. And the media do come and it's a bit of a fuss and Nuria gives these slightly bemused interviews and it gets to the end of the day and the police say, okay, you've had your fun, take it down. But the people in Cotty knew, well, hang on a minute, you haven't told Nuria she gets to stay. Actually, we want a housing, we want a rent freeze for our entire housing project. When we've got those guarantees, then we'll take this down. But of course they knew the minute they left this little makeshift barricade they'd built, the police would just tear it down and that would be that. So one of my favourite people at Cotty, a woman called Tanya Gartner. (laughs) Tanya, uh, she's one of the punk squatters. She wears tiny little miniskirts, even in Berlin winters. Tanya is quite hardcore. She had this idea. She goes up to her apartment, she comes down, and she brought a klaxon, you know those things that make loud noises at soccer matches. And she said, okay, here's what we're going to do. We're going to drop a timetable to man this barricade. We're going to man it 24 hours a day until we get what we want. If the police come to take it down before we've got what we want, let off this klaxon. We'll all come down from our apartments and we'll stop them. So people started signing up to man this barricade. People who had never met would never have met. Very unlikely pairings. So Tanya, in her tiny little miniskirt, was paired with Nuria, who's a very religious Muslim in a full hijab. And they get one of the night shifts. I I think it was Wednesday night. And they're sitting there and they're like, this is super awkward. We've got nothing to talk about we couldn't be more different. And the first few nights they're there, they're like, this is embarrassing. As the nights go on, they started talking. Tanya and Nuria discovered they had something incredibly powerful in common. Nuria had come to Berlin when she was 16 from a village in Turkey with two young children. And she was meant to raise enough money to send back home for her husband, who was in Turkey, so he could come and join her. After she'd been in Berlin for, I think, 18 months, she got word from home that her husband was dead. She'd always told people he died of a heart attack. Sitting there in the cold in Cotty with Tanya, she told something she told her something she'd never told anyone in Germany. Actually her husband had died of tuberculosis, which had been seen as a kind of shameful disease of poverty. Nuria had, had never told anyone. That's when Tanya started to talk about something she rarely talked about. She had come to Cotti when she was fifteen, she'd been thrown out by her middle class family. She'd come to Cotti. And she started living in one of the squats there, the punk squats. And quite quickly after she arrived, she got pregnant. They realised they had both been children with children of their own in this place they had been quite afraid of. They realised they were incredibly similar. These pairings were happening all over Cotty. Directly opposite this housing project, there's a a gay club called Zudblock. It's a pretty uncompromising gay club. And um, it opened about a year before the protests began. And as you can imagine, there's a lot of very religious Muslims in this neighbourhood Some people had been really appalled. They'd actually smashed the windows. It had been pretty bad. Um, And when the protest began, Zudblock, the the people who worked in the club there, gave all their furniture. They started helping. And after the protest had been going on for about three months, the people at Zudblock were like, you should have all your meetings in our club. We'll give you free drink. We'll give you free food. We want you to win. And even the kind of left-wing people at Cottey were like, we're not going to get these very religious Muslims to come and have meetings you know, underneath posters for things that are so obscene, I can't even mention them on your podcast, right? Um, It did start to happen. As one of the Turkish-German women there said to me, we all realised we had to take these small steps to understand each other. After the protest had been going on for a full year, and this blockage they'd built was a permanent structure with a roof, a really nice structure, one day a guy turned up at the protest called Tunkai, who was in his early 50s and he'd been living homeless. And it's clear when you meet Tunkai, he's got some kind of cognitive difficulties, but he also has an amazing energy about him. He's really affirming and lovely and everyone liked him. And after he'd been hanging around for about a week and people there clocked that he was homeless, they were like, you should come and live in this thing we've built. We don't want you to be homeless. So Tunkai started to live there and he became a much loved part of the, the, the Cotty protest. And after Tunkai had been around for about, I think it was nine months, one day the police came to inspect. They would do this every now and then. And, um, Tunkai doesn't like it when people argue. He thought the police were arguing, so he went to try to hug one of the police officers, but they thought he was attacking them. So they arrested him. That was when it was discovered. Tunkai had been shut away in a psychiatric hospital for 20 years, often literally in a padded cell. Um, he'd escaped one day. He'd been on the streets for a few months, and he found his way to Cottey. So the police took him back to this psychiatric hospital who shut him away again, at which point the entire Cottey protest turned into a kind of free Tonkai movement, right? They descend on this psychiatric hospital at the other end of Berlin. And these psychiatrists are like, what is this? They've got this person they've had shut away for 20 years. And then suddenly they've got these women in hijabs, these very camp gay men and these punks demanding his release. They're like, who are you? And I remember Uli Hartman, one of the protesters later, told me that she said to the psychiatrist you know, you don't love him. He doesn't belong with you. We love him. He belongs with us. And I remember in Cotty thinking, how many of us, if someone carried us away to a psychiatric hospital, would have so many people turning up and saying, no, we love this person. We want to look after this person, not you. Um, so many things happened at Kotti. They got Tunkai back. He lives there still. Um, they got a rent freeze for their entire housing project. They then launched a referendum initiative to keep rents down across the whole city. They got the largest number of written signatures in the long history of the city of Berlin. But I remember the last time I saw Nuria. She said to me, look, I'm really glad I got to stay in my neighborhood. That's great. I gained so much more than that. I was surrounded by these incredible people all along. And I would never have known. I remember speaking to one of the other um, Turkish-German women there, Tanker, who 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 said to me, you know, when I grew up in Turkey, I grew up in a village and I called my whole village home. And then I came to live in the Western world and I learned that what you're meant to call home here is just your four walls. And then this whole protest began and I started to call all these people in this whole place my home. And she said she realised, in some sense, in this culture, we are homeless. The, the, the Bosnian writer, brilliant Bosnian writer Alexander Heyman said, home is where people notice when you're not there. By that standard, they were homeless before and they were not homeless afterwards. And I realised many of us in this culture are either homeless or have a sense of home that is so small it doesn't meet our needs for belonging. And I remember it was really in Koti... I think they think I'm slightly insane because I would just turn up every few months and just be so moved. I would just cry. I remember one time Sandy, one of the people there just saying to me, Johan, I think maybe you have allergies because my eyes get watering so much. But they're... it was so clear to me and Cotty what these scientists had been teaching me. These people didn't need to be drugged in the main. They needed to be together. They needed to be seen and loved and valued. They needed to have meaning in their lives. They needed a tribe. They needed security. Um, and I I kept thinking about how, I mean, think about how unhappy these people have been before. Nuria was literally about to kill herself. Tung Kai was shut away in a in a, in a, in a literally in a padded cell. Um, loads of these people were depressed and anxious. And I remember sitting with Tanya one day outside Zubblock, this gay club, and her saying to me, you know, when you feel like crap and you're all alone, shut away in your home. You think there's something wrong with you. But what we did is we came out of our corner crying and we started to fight. And we realized we were surrounded by people who felt the same way. And to me, that was of all the insights I learned, that was the most important. I think you can tell, I love these people in Cottee, but I have to tell you, they are not exceptional. These are randomly selected people this hunger for reconnection this capacity for such kindness and goodness is all around us everywhere it needed it needs to be activated this is deep in our nature to form tribes to look after each other to care about people who are sad to 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 build a sense of meaning together this is th- 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 this longing to build a sense of home in this homeless atomized Society where we've been taught such sick ideas, like life is about buying things, showing them off and displaying them on Instagram. This hunger is just beneath the surface everywhere. And and the book is called Lost Connections because we've lost these connections, but they are waiting for us to pick them up, right? And they're not hard to find. This is not like explaining quantum physics to people. Not that I could do that, but (laughs) if I could. You know, it's not like explaining complex math. Again, another thing I definitely couldn't explain it, the, the, these are insights that are deep in our nature that we, we all feel them at some level and we feel the lack of them deeply at this moment but it doesn't have to be like that right we can follow the example of the people in Koti. Nuria sends out this distress signal and people came to her
0: I think you've explained it beautifully and I think on that rousing note uh, we can we can probably close it out oh, um, great very beautiful you've given me a lot to think about and i suspect our audience members i'll thank you on their behalf because um, i believe they'll be quite moved thanks tom before we before we fully close it out and i should point out that you if if people are hearing emotion in your I'm voice sorry. it shows <laughs> on your face as yeah. well um uh yeah, that that story clearly means a lot to you yeah um can you I, – I, I do this little thing that I kind of jokingly refer to as the plug zone at the end of the show. Can, can, you, can you Can you? just uh, – I think – I suspect by this point people really want to know how they can learn more about you. Can you give us again the names of your books? Yeah. This is for your publicist. Uh, where we can find you on social media. Any other thing that you think we should uh, yeah. uh, go look at?
1: Yeah. Um, they gave me a little script that I meant to read that literally is like the perfect expression of junk values. So I meant I to go like uh, – if you'd like to know what a range of people from Elton John to um, uh, Hillary Clinton to Oprah to blah, 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 have said about the book, you can go to. anyway. Uh, so um, if you want to know where you can get the, the, my book about depression, the, the physical book or the audio book, you go to www.thelostconnections.com. If you want to know about my book about addiction, which is obviously related to a lot of the themes that we've talked about, it's www.chasingthescream, as in a ah, scream, not scream. Uh, com. You can also listen on those. You can take a quiz on those websites to see how much you know about depression, anxiety, addiction. You can also um, listen to audio of loads of the people. All, lo, um, in fact, all of the people I interviewed who we, we've talked about and hear them say loads more really interesting things. And you can see where to follow me on loads of social media. I um, had <laughs> this funny experience where... The end of an interview a while back they said to me, you know, what's your Twitter, what's your Facebook, blah, blah, blah. And they said, What's your Snapchat? And I was like, I am a forty year old man, right? I will go a long way to get my message out, but I'm not joining Snapchat, right? I have a limit. So yeah.
0: <laughs> I'll do anything for love, but I won't do that. Exactly.
1: Meatloaf was if Meatloaf had known about Snapchat, that song would be even more impassioned than it is now, right?
0: Well, speaking of passion, I appreciate yours. Oh, thank you so much, Dan. I, 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 I really I admire really... your work and I'm really thank thrilled you. to be with you. Thank you. Great job.
1: Hooray. Thank you.
0: Okay. Thanks again to Johan Hari. Time now for voicemails. Here's number one.
2: Hey, Dan. This is Jeff from One Pennsylvania. Um, I'm just calling because I wanted to talk a little bit more about transcendental meditation. Um, I've been listening to your podcast for about two months now um, and really just playing catch up with the available episodes. Um, And I feel like many people talk about um, developing a mantra to help them stay focused during meditation. Um, I've only very recently gotten into meditation. I probably practice about three minutes every morning, just focusing on my breath. Um, But I feel like if I had a mantra to focus on, um, I might be able to um, better weed out that monkey mind that comes up uh, so frequently with me. So I'm just wondering if, if developing a mantra is something that is available um, to me, being that I haven't been to a retreat or anything like that. Um, I did do a little bit of research, um, and I saw some, some modern-day ones that were available online, Um, But I do know that a mantra should also be kind of specific to uh, the individual. So I'm just wondering what your thoughts are on that and and how I can go about um, identifying one that's personal for myself um, that I can use regularly throughout my practice. So thanks so much. I love your podcast. Keep doing what you're doing.
0: Thank you so much to say so much to you. You said a lot there. So I want to kind of unpack it step by step. First of all, If you're interested in TM or Transcendental Meditation, I think the route there is to go to your local TM center if you have one and uh, do the training. I believe it's four days. We had on the show one of the leading experts in TM, Bob Roth, who teaches a lot of celebrities how to do it. And he really goes – if you want to go back and listen to that episode, he talks a lot about the training for TM. They don't discuss it super granularly in public because it is something you have to pay for. Um, although they also, they also through uh, the David Lynch Foundation, give away a lot of the training to certain groups of people as well. So I would investigate that if you're specifically interested in transcendental meditation. They do believe that a mantra, uh, you need to be you know transmitted, your mantra, your individual mantra, they say, by your teacher. However, uh, transcendental meditation is uh, derived from Hinduism, as I understand it. And is part of what's known as Vedic meditation, which is a kind of meditation, uh, a set of meditation techniques. One of which is using a mantra, and you can use a mantra outside of the formal TM system. Uh, that doesn't need to be transmitted to you through uh, a TM teacher, and if you don't want to pay whatever it is, I think like nine hundred bucks or something like that, you can go to a regular Vedic meditation teacher. There, are, you just do some googling. You might find one in your neighborhood. Um, they may charge less, or you can just read the book, uh, "The Relaxation Response" by Herbert Benson, who's a Harvard physician who uh, did some studies, uh, I think, in the '80s or '70s, into transcendental meditation, and uh, wrote what was at the time a mega best-selling book about mantra meditation. And he says you can just use any word you want, like one or peace or something like that. That was actually one of the first books I read about meditation because it was recommended by uh, my psych- my shrink, my psychiatrist. So there's that. So that's so we're, we've got two options on the table, and I'm going to give you a third. The first option is go formally sign up for a TM. The other uh, a TM class. The other is uh, just read Benson's book or find a Vedic meditation teacher, and and you don't have to pay as much as you as you might have to do for TM. Although I have to say uh, I don't have anything against TM. A lot of a lot of my colleagues here at ABC News. Signed up for that and uh, have gotten a lot out of it. You can hear past podcasts with people like George Stephanopoulos and Robin Roberts who've gotten a lot out of TM. But the third suggestion I have is somebody who's not personally a TM practitioner but instead a practitioner of Buddhist meditation or mindfulness meditation is that you can do um, meditation where you just watch your breath but add in a a little mental note. And that can serve, I think, to – and I use a little mental note when I am meditating as a way to, I think you said before, sort of uh, quiet the monkey mind a little bit to keep me focused on, on what I want to be f- focused on, which is the breath often. Um, and so it's the skillful use of thinking to connect you to your object of meditation. In this case, as you said, a couple of minutes of trying to watch your breath coming in and going out. So how would this work? So as you're sitting there and you're feeling your, breath, your abdomen rise and fall or you're feeling the air come in through your nostrils or out and out, you might just use a soft mental note of in and out or rising, rising, falling, falling, uh, if you're at the abdomen. And that can – and then, of course, when you get distracted, which you will a million times, you just notice you've become distracted and you go back to the breath. And I found that this mental note, uh, mental noting – really helps me stay focused and so it would alleviate the need for you to go out and, and get yourself a mantra and you could just do what I'm suggesting here and see if it works for you I would say as some guy named the Buddha used to say check it out for yourself don't take it on faith just because I'm saying it or the Buddha said it just see if it works for you in your practice so maybe start with that and if, if that doesn't work for you then then go take a look at the at, at, at the mantra situation hope that helped Here's voicemail number two.
2: Hey, Dan. It's Tim from Narragansett. First, let me say thanks. I've been developing my practice since reading your 10% book a few years ago. Very helpful. I find myself in stressful work situations, practicing and trying to be mindful, but I also worry that I get stuck and I'm not quite on the edge in terms of execution. So, in brief, how do I go from mindfulness to execution in a rather high-paced environment with a lot of the
0: line. Thanks so much. Thank you, Tim. I assume that's Narragansett, Rhode Island. I used to go there in high school with my buddies and misbehave. So, yeah, shout-out to Narragansett. And and thank you for for calling in. I appreciate it. If I understand your question correctly, you're saying you're practicing mindfulness, but you're in a stressful work environment, and you're not off – you're sometimes – caught up in your emotions, and you're not always able to be mindful. So I would say that sounds like you're just a normal human being, and uh, welcome to the world of 10% improvement. Don't expect, even once you understand mindfulness, both in theory and in practice, that you're going to be able to ride every difficult emotion and not get caught up and not maybe act in ways that you're that you later regret. That's just... If, based on my experience of having meditated for uh, about ten years now, it's it's just not on the menu that kind of perfection. You know, maybe if you're a um, you know the LeBron James of meditation and you're like on the short track to full enlightenment, you could expect that. But I, I don't think for most of us mortals, it's as I said on the menu. The goal really is to look at this as something that you're going to be able to put into practice. The mindfulness of a difficult emotion and the ability to ride it, to let it pass and not act on it—that you're going to be able to put that into practice, say 10% of the time, maybe 2% of the time, uh, but that over time, as you get better both at your formal meditation practice and at taking that formal meditation practice out into the world, you will improve, and that's what we're talking about here. As I, you know, have said before, if I You know, a lot of people beat up on themselves, myself included. I spent a lot of time beating up on myself about the quality of my meditation practice both on the cushion and out in the world. But the fact of the matter is this is a skill. And if I – as I've said this before, if I hand you a flute right now and if you've never played flute before, you're not going to be able to bang out a Jethro Tull solo. That's just not how skills, especially complex skills, work. It takes hours and hours and hours of training. So give yourself a break. I assume you are doing way better than you did before and I assume if I check back with you in six months, 12 months, 18 months, if you carry on practicing, you will be doing better then than you are doing now. And uh, that's how the game goes. So I would say just keep on practicing and look at these opportunities. Look at the the moments where you quote unquote fail in, in um, bringing your mindfulness into really difficult situations as opportunities to learn. Just the way you look at moments uh, when you quote-unquote fail at meditation on the cushion like when you get distracted as just an opportunity to start again that's how it goes here thank you tim appreciate it and thank you everybody for uh listening um i really do appreciate everybody listening and i want to thank of course the folks who make this podcast possible ryan kessler samuel johns grace livingston many many others Again, don't forget to vote for us for the Webbys. If you uh, are so inclined, check out 10percenthappier.com. Go to the top and uh, click the link and uh, go vote for us. It'll take 30 seconds. While you're at it, while you're doing me a favor, if you haven't, rate us, review us, talk about us on social media. That always really helps. Thanks again for listening. I'll see you next Wednesday. If you like 10% Happier, and I hope you do, uh, you can listen early and ad-free right now by joining Wondery+. Plus. In the Wondery app or on Apple Podcasts. Prime members can listen ad-free on Amazon music. Before you go, tell us about yourself by filling out a short survey at Wondery.com/slash survey.
3: I'm Shimol Yai, and I have a new podcast called The Competition. Every year, 50 high school senior girls compete in a massive scholarship competition. I wouldn't say I have an ego problem, but I'm extremely competitive. All of the competitors are used to being the best and the brightest, and they're all vying for a huge cash prize.
2: This will probably be the most intense that you've ever gone through in your life.
3: I remember that feeling because I was one of them. I lost, but now I'm coming back as a judge and also a kind of teen girl anthropologist. Because if you wanna understand what it's like to be a young woman in America today, the competition's not a bad place to start. Hopefully no one will die on stage tonight.